0: You are now tuned in to Believe. Do you believe? It makes sense that I would, you know, totally be having the greatest time in my life because these are all the things that I hadn't explored in my addiction, right? We don't go and do all these, you know, adventurous, spontaneous things when we're drinking, right? And so... It's producing all these levels of dopamine and serotonin and, and, you know, oxytocin and all these chemicals that naturally are in our brain that we try to act or that we do activate through our substance use, right? But if we get rid of the substances and we start to do things that will stimulate us, we will get that, that high, right? We'll feel juiced up.
1: And um,
0: it's 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 been incredible, man. I wouldn't change it for the world. I am I am so glad and grateful and happy that I am able to finally live a healthy, sober life, and it is fun as hell.
1: Sobriety is scary. Untapped Keg is here to look at different perspectives into sobriety and mental health. Oftentimes, the topics are going to be uncomfortable, and they might be triggering. We do not shy away from difficult conversations, so when you're listening, please keep this in mind. When it comes to talking about things that we do, oftentimes we're speaking from a personal point of view, a lived experience, and as peers. We are not medical professionals, but rather advocates, and if there is a medical professional on the podcast, we will state as such, thank you and enjoy the show. Thank you for tapping into some untapped keg our podcast where we explore the different perspectives of sobriety and mental health so that you can take pieces and implement it into your own life. I am one of your hosts, RJ Zimmerman, and I have the privilege of being joined today with Martin Lockett. How are you doing today, Martin?
0: Doing great. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for being here. Um, for those who don't know and i want to i want to start by throwing some stuff out there like so you have been on all the wiser podcast you are at martinlocket.com. um you have a master's in psychology you're a substance abuse counselor and you were also in prison for 17 and a half years for manslaughter and driving drunk um You have a lot of accomplishments, but I think it's that last part that a lot of people hang on. Um, Could you give us a little introduction into who Martin Lockett is?
0: Sure. So that was that was a, a great synopsis. I am 43 years of age. I have spent almost half of my life incarcerated. I am a staunch advocate for reducing the amount of DUI fatalities on our road. I'm a substance abuse counselor. I am an author, and i I am very passionate about delivering my message to help to help the masses. So, um, just briefly, i I started drinking around the age of fourteen. I came from a very loving family, both parents in the household. Uh, we never wanted for anything, even though we didn't have a lot of money. Our parents certainly provided and did the best they could for us. However, the lures of the streets and adolescence and trying to gain independence and wanting to you know, fit in and belong led to me drinking, which quickly exacerbated into, I would say, full blown alcoholism by the age of 16. So I was totally reliant and dependent on alcohol to not feel the pain of my deep-seated insecurities at that time, my lack of uh, healthy self-concept and low self-esteem and and all of those those wonderful things. And this eventually culminated with the fatal crash on New Year's Eve of 2003 that claimed two lives and severely injured another. So to take you through that day, it was a normal day. It started off like any normal day. I I was living with my girlfriend in Vancouver, Washington, which is about a half hour from Portland, where my family lived at the time. And I had kissed her goodbye. I traveled to Portland to a warehouse that I worked at the time. And I remember we had gotten off work early because of the holiday. So we were wrapping up and my boss had joked with us and said, you know, you guys go out and have a good time tonight. But please don't let me wake up and see you on the front page. Of course, you know, we laugh it off and, you know, we clock out for the day. And I remember I went straight to the liquor store where I bought a fifth of gin. I then proceeded to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. So I get to my parents' house, I hang out with my twin brother and I drink the alcohol and then he and I had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party. So after I drank that fifth of gin, I then went back to the store and I bought four 24-ounce cans of beer. And that is 96 ounces of beer that I drank between the hours of about 5 and 8 o'clock that night. And then my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out. We didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house and the three of us hang out, kill some time. I think we drank like a pint of Hennessy or some kind of cognac And now it's about eleven o'clock. So we go to exit his his apartment door, and his mother, you know, warns us. And you guys be careful tonight. You hear? And of course, we all reply. "Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am." You know, but obviously, we knew we did not intend to be careful that night. I mean, let's let's be honest. So we get to the party. We see a bunch of old classmates. It was great times. We drink more alcohol, of course bring in the new year. Everything's great. We exit the party. I drop my friend off without incident, get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about and feeling is how exhausted I am because I've been drinking all day. I think I had one meal at about 4.30 or 5 o'clock that evening. And I just wanted to get him home so I could drive another half hour to my house in Vancouver, Washington, go to sleep. I knew I didn't have to work the next day. So I'm trying to rush to get him home and I'm speeding at about 80 miles an hour. And of course, this makes him a little nervous. He said, man, you know, slow down. You know, the police are out, you know, it'd be in the holiday and all. So I went ahead and slowed down and we exit the freeway about 10 minutes later. I am now driving in a residential area. And I again, I begin to pick up my speed now to about 60 miles an hour. And this time he begins to yell at me, you know, slow down before we crash you know, and I snapped back, calm down, man. I, you know, I'm, I know what I'm doing. I got this. And But just to appease him and keep him quiet, I went ahead and slowed down. So we continue to drive for about 10 minutes. And we're just, I'm just about to get into the left-hand turning lane to drop him off at our parents' house. And then he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey, man, let's let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, Here's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. I just want to drop him off, go home and go to sleep. So we continue to drive two blocks past our parents' house. And then about two blocks from that point, there's an intersection. And I'm looking up at the light and the light is yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I clearly knew I was not going to make this light, but it didn't matter because in a split second, I had made up my mind, I'm not waiting for it. I'm just going to go right through Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was, a lot, I was a lot more aggressive, as many people are when they're when they're intoxicated and driving. Right? I had never gotten a ticket. I had never been pulled over. Like I was like a great driver when I was sober. Of course, you think you're a great driver when you're intoxicated as well. There mm-hmm. lies the problem. Mm-hmm. So I immediately punched the gas, and I'm almost tunnel vision, just looking straight forward, not seeing anything to the right or left of me. And literally, before I before I knew it, literally seconds later just the most earth shattering boom you can imagine and so the airbag embellished my face and and um my car comes to a slow winding halt and I realize I'm alive so I'm relieved I immediately look to my right and I see my brother who appears to be okay so I'm, I'm starting to be more relieved and okay we're okay and immediately a guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door, you know, just frantically. Are you guys OK? Are you guys OK? You know, I, I yeah, we're OK. I tell him and I step out of my vehicle and instead of going to check on the people I had just hit, like most decent people would do. I was so self-absorbed and superficial in my life at the time that I'm assessing the damage on my vehicle because I love this car more than life itself. It was, you know, it gave me status. It made me feel important. It, it, you know, people complimented me for it. And so I'm devastated because I'm now looking at my prized possession in a heap of, of, of crumpled metal. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm doing that, my brother points across the street and he's like, hey, man, he said, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there, man. And um, it doesn't look like they're moving. So instantly my brain goes to that. And as I'm thinking about that, like, oh my God, what have I done? Of course, within seconds, lights and sirens are just lighting up the sky. So the policemen are on the scene and they're talking to me and they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. And he's asking me, you know, about how much I drank that day and, you know, should I have been driving and things like that. And of course I'm being as truthful and as honest as I can because like, I just did a very terrible thing and I feel Mm -hmm. awful. And so he confirmed to me about, I don't know, less than five minutes into that interview that that person who was lying on the pavement had in fact died. And he informed me that another was being driven by ambulance to Emanuel Hospital just blocks away. So I'm placed under arrest. I'm put into the back of the cruiser. We head for downtown for processing. And at this time... I'm trying to think about not trying. I'm thinking about the fact that somebody is literally dead because of my actions. Mm -hmm. But I'm also keenly aware at 24 years old of the law in the state of Oregon that requires no ifs ands or buts about it. That requires a mandatory 120 month day for day sentence for DUI manslaughter. I know that. So that's 10 years day for day. Mm -hmm. Boom. I knew I was spending 10 years in prison. I'm listening to the I'm listening to the police radio because there's a lot of chatter about the crash, of course. And it sounds like about 10 minutes into that ride, it sounds like it had been announced over the radio that someone else was in the vehicle, unbeknownst to me, who had perished. And so I asked the officer from the back seat. I said, excuse me, sir. I said, did I just hear that correctly? That that someone else was in the vehicle and they didn't make it? He said, unfortunately, yes. So, I mean, as you can imagine, like the weight of, of being responsible for two lives that I had never met, never never had a single word with these people and they're dead because of me, but then juxtapose that with the fact that now I'm gone for 20 years. Like I'm 24 years old and I'm gonna go to prison For twenty years, I'm not going to see this neighborhood that I'm driving through—the neighborhood I grew up in—for twenty years. So, um, there's not there are not words that can adequately describe how low that felt. Um, But I would soon find out over the next coming days and weeks and months that I had time to process what had happened.
1: So. As you're riding, you know, in that police car and you know that you're going to be gone for 20 years, um, what thoughts came in your mind about your family?
0: So, again, we were only four blocks from from my family's house where this happened. And and statistics show that the vast majority, I don't know the exact number, but it's it's, it's upwards of 50, 60 percent. Of crashes happened within like a mile radius of somebody's residence. It's, it's a very fascinating statistic. Um, but we're driving past our parents' block, and I take one glance down the street, and like it was just, it was just, it was just a finality that I never thought I would experience, where I knew that when I eventually would see that house again or or, or or set foot in that house again, that my mom wouldn't be around because she her health had been failing for years. She was on dialysis at the time that this happened. She was only 49. And I knew, like I knew I would not see my mom free again. I knew that, you know, I'm thinking about my my one-year-old niece. I'm thinking about my eight-year-old nephew. And I'm thinking they're going to be like fully grown when I see them again. Like, how much am I going to miss out on by this one split second? I mean, I'm telling you, it was a, a, a decision I made in a matter of it felt like less than a second. Like there was no thought. And now that one split second catastrophic decision had taken two lives and would keep me from my family for seemingly an eternity. And life would be drastically different when this was all over. I knew that. And it was, it was, you know, I felt a ton of shame, not just that night, but in in years to come for what I had put my family through. They didn't ask, like I called the next morning. I called the next morning. I left my cell at like 8.30 in the morning. We get we get an hour out of the cell in the morning and an hour out of the cell in the evening. And So that was my time to call my family. And I called my mom and she answered. And. Like, she was just so devastated. Like she had first of all, they had no idea of how extensive my drinking problem was. They knew I drank. They had no idea. I relied on it. As heavily as I did, because I was working and I was going to school and paying my bills. And so outwardly, everything looked to be intact. Right. There was yeah. no real reason for concern. So mm-hmm. she was shocked and she was just devastated because she thought I was doing so well. And so I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm trying to explain to her. I mean, I couldn't really explain what had happened. I just, you know, I just kept apologizing. Like, Mom, I am so sorry. Like, I don't know what happened, Mom. I don't know what happened. And I asked to talk to my dad. And she said, Martin, I haven't been able to talk to him all night and all morning. Like, he won't even come out of the room. Like, he is just, he is just, he is so broken over this. You know, my dad is not a man who would express many words of, you know, emotion. He kind of grew up in that, you know, kind of tough guy era. He showed his love. He took care of the family. He spent quality time with his kids, but he wasn't going to be that emotional guy. He did not want to talk to me. He wasn't, he wasn't angry at me if anything. And this was, this was, this was misguided and wrong as well, but he blamed my brother. He blamed my friend for allowing me to drive. Right. He said friends don't let later. He said friends don't let friends drive drunk. I don't know why they would let you drive. And, and by that time i had already started to take full responsibility. I said, Dad, you can't blame them. You can't. You know, like I made the decision. You know, it's nobody's fault but mine. But he was just he was just crushed, man, because like he knew he knew that 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 like I had so much promise. Right. I was the one who was going to be the first one to graduate from college you know, um, in my family. Right. And, and, and I was going to you know, be successful in all these things. And, and then he just saw that whole dream just, just, just went away. And, um, so little would we know, well, so I ended up losing mom three years into my 17 and a half year sentence. I lost my mom and I was not able to attend the funeral. So when you're, when you're convicted So when you're convicted and you're you're in a state prison in the state of Oregon, you're not allowed to attend the funeral because there's too many people there and they see it as a high risk. Somebody could try to snatch you or, you know, hold guns to the officers. So you're not allowed to go to the funeral. I was able to petition the administration, however, to go to the funeral home. So I'm driven, you know, my family paid like 700 bucks to have me driven. You know, 200 miles because uh, they they send you way out to a prison in a you know rural area, far away from your family. Right, your family has to take off work and spend the whole day and get a hotel to come and visit you. Um, you know, that's a whole another story about the prison industrial complex and 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 you know the the gouging fees that they charge you to to have phone calls and all that. But anyway, so they transferred me to Portland. I go to the funeral home. The only person who's allowed to be there is the funeral director. The officers told me on the way there and they told my family, if anybody is is in there or hanging out in the car on the street, we're going to keep going. He's not going to he's not going to go in that funeral home. Yes, they were very adamant about that. In fact, one of them. So you go shackled, right? You're shackled at the ankles. You're shackled. Mm -hmm. You have a belly chain going around. you're You're handcuffed in front of you. You're wearing a white jumpsuit. and they go in and sweep the place before you go in and make sure nobody's hanging out in the bathroom, you know, with the machine gun or whatever is what, is what they say. So they take me in and it's just a dark, you know, they take me into the area where my mom is at the front of the, the, the room, you know, in her casket, she's all dressed up and, you know, looking nice. And they go to the back of the room and, and they allow me to, to go up there and, um, in shackles, they don't, they don't take any of the, the, the um the constraints off. And it's just me and my mom and two officers in a dimly lit room um, for me to say my 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 final goodbye. And um like I'm grateful and I would do that exact same thing 13 months later when my dad passed away very unexpectedly. So I'm grateful for having had the opportunity to say my final goodbye to both of my parents but i'm telling you the coldness and just the just the isolation of that feeling to be doing that by myself no family no friends no hugs no condolences no nothing like you don't think about any of that when you like when this happened yeah. obviously i knew life would be drastically different when i got out but there's no way you can possibly Think about, you know, all these ripple effects and the ways that this is going to affect you and your family when you make that one catastrophic mistake. There's no way you can calculate how far reaching this is going to be. But I will soon find out.
1: It's, you know, it's I I come from Wisconsin. I grew up in Wisconsin my entire life. and I grew up in a small town and um I know personally, God, 10, 15, 20 people who died drinking and driving. I know a lot of people that have been in accidents and sent away and it still didn't deter me from making those mistakes. I mean, I drove hours and I woke up and I had no idea how I got there. And it's like these decisions that we make when we're drinking and you just, you have to set it up beforehand, the habit of Uber of what's the taxi number and knowing that that's what I'm going to do or the walk friends. Um, you know, my, I, I had to go to the police station and pick my brother up on a DUI and thank God he didn't hit anybody didn't get in an accident. Um, I think he was passed out at a stop, what it was. And then he got uh, pulled over and it was like, but a couple weeks before driving in winter, he was driving drunk and he spun out into a snowbank and he called me somehow. I got there, pushed his car out. We parked it down the road where it would be safe overnight. And I drove him home. And he went successfully went a month calling me to come get him. I was sober at this point. And, um, he still ended up getting, a driving drunk one night and getting a DUI. And it's like, these are decisions that are made. Before like through habits, like I said, they really are. And the environment that we grow up in, even if we see the consequences on the outside, we don't think about them on the inside. We don't think about how it's going to impact our families. Right. I mean, and you talking so vulnerable, vulnerably about this and how it affected your family and you and everything like that's, it's important to get these. Like I know that the most influential anti-drug, message that I received in school was a mock of somebody dying in a car accident because of a drunk driver. And like, that was a class they took a classmate and went through a funeral and they showed his family picking out a casket, like and him lying in the casket, like they went all out for this because Wisconsin has a massive drinking problem and a massive driving while drunk problem. And it was enough to deter me for, A few months, but I still inevitably went back to that old habit, right? And just understanding it's, there's so many victims when this happens. There's the people who are not going home to see their family anymore, right? There's the the victims. There's the people who don't get to hug their family anymore. But there's also the person behind it there's the person on the other side who are not gonna be able to hug their families that their life is for no matter how much there's just no taking it back and the empathy you know you you are not a pos you are not right but oftentimes when we hear about this we're like how can people make that decision we know better but we still do
0: right no and 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 you're 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 so right in that you know because for me I had the next morning again when I had gone out to make this phone call and the news is on, and I'm watching the news, and of course you know the 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 top story is about the crash, and you know, my mind kind of harkened back to all the times where I had seen you know, breaking news, fatal crash, driver was intoxicated, right? Or reading the newspaper and you read about these stories over and over and over. And I don't know if that, if that kind of desensitizes us to it. I don't know, but I know that like, I knew that was never going to be me. Like, right. Because I can, I can say, and again, in our addiction, we will, why I will, rationalize. I will minimize. I will just mm-hmm. and, and say that, well, <laughs> clearly they're just a lightweight drinker. Right. I, th- uh-huh. Like like that, like I know how to con- contain my alcohol. I can mm-hmm. drive. A, look, I've driven for all these months, haven't had a ticket. Right. We will tell ourselves anything to keep the the ridiculous, dangerous behavior going. Right. Because our addicted brain doesn't want to start thinking rationally. Our addictive brain wants to tell us whatever it needs to tell us to keep this addiction going. And so, and so, you know, and, and I tell people all the time when I speak at the DUI panels, I say, you literally never think it's going to happen to you until it does. Right. So don't end up like me. Like you said, nowadays they didn't have it in 2003. They had taxi cabs or a designated okay. driver. But guess what? All my friends that I was hanging around, they all drank. We all drank and drove, if I'm being honest, sad to say. Yeah. So nobody was going to sacrifice their fun night, you know, and not drink in order to get us home safely. It just wasn't going to happen. But today there are too many, there's too many things out there or too many ways to get you home safely and easily and only for a few bucks. Right? Right there on your on your phone, you know. So so there's, there's really no excuse. And, and I don't care how good of a driver you think you are when you're intoxicated. Your judgment is off. Your 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 reaction time is off. Your motor skills are compromised. It's just not biologically and physically true that you are a better driver, a more sound driver when you're drunk. But after you've been drinking, you can't make that sound decision at that point. Right. So so it's best, like you said, before you if you know you're going to be out drinking or you think there's a chance that you might. Make sure you have a plan in place for how you're going to get home before you do so. I mean, you know, it's just it's just not worth it's just not worth the risk. And like you said, you know, we never calculate we never calculate the irreversible damage that it's going to have on our families. I'm not asking anybody to cry a tear for me. Right. I'm still alive. I still get the rest of my life. And, and that's and that's the thing that at my sentencing almost a year later. You know, the 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 survivor of this crash, he was a he was a he was a middle aged man and he had been permanently disabled because of the crash. So like he broke his uh, pelvic bone and his ribs. I remember he had a nine year old son and he talked about during the victim impact statements as he's addressing me. He's telling me how because his injuries are so severe, he can't even play catch with his nine year old son anymore. And he said, you know, that he had just proposed to to his fiance that night. The driver, and hours later, she actually died in his arms. And he's and 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 he's making me feel the weight of my decision as he should have. He yeah. had every right to express everything that he did to me on that day, because I'm the one who made a choice to change the course of his life forever. Right? I made that choice for him. He didn't get a choice. I made that for him. I don't know about you, but I don't think any of us would want somebody making that choice for us. Right. And he told me, he said, you, you're still young. And when this is all over with, you're still going to have your whole life ahead of you. Right. But I feel like mine is over from what you have taken from me. Like you'll never understand what you have taken from me. And he's right. I do get the rest of my life and thankfully i am trying to make the most of it and speaking out about duis and things like that but you know i took two beautiful amazing wonderful people from this world and 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 you know that's like that's something i can never change you know but you just you, you just don't think about that when you make that decision to get behind the wheel after you've been drinking if you if you actually could really grasp what could happen? What could be the, the 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 consequences of this one action? If you really truly thought about it, I don't think anybody would get behind the wheel. The thing is, we tell ourselves everything but that. Oh, it's only two miles. Oh, I'll be okay. Oh, I'll drive the speed limit. Oh, I'll go down the back roads. Right? We never take into that that equation. What if there's what if what if there's that one percent chance? I don't care how you want to you know, quantify it. You could say it's a 5% chance or 1% chance. What if it's that sliver of a chance that you do something like this? Because let me tell you, everybody who has done this, nobody thought it was going to happen. That's the furthest thing from your mind. It was the furthest thing from those people's minds that day when they woke up to have a good New Year's Eve and go to a clean and sober New Year's Eve party that night, which is where they were coming from. When they were struck and killed. Nobody thought in that vehicle that they were gonna lose their lives by the end of the night, right? Mm -hmm. This is not something that you think about, but it happens every single day, all throughout the day in this country. And we have to be better at addressing this head on and being accountable and being responsible, and not just for ourselves, but for people next to us. If I'm at a party and I know this guy or this woman has been drinking their, you know, all over the place and and clearly they're intoxicated. It's my responsibility to make sure they don't get in that car and drive. That's my responsibility. It's not theirs at this point. It is theirs, but it's also mine. And so we we just have to be better together.
1: And that's where the empathy comes along, right? Like if you can't be empathetic for the strangers out there, be empathetic for your family. That's, that's what I really wanted to talk about because it's, it's not, it's easy to see the victims and be like, they are like, I can't believe that happened to them. I'm be empathetic towards them. It's very difficult to see the person behind the wheel and be empathetic because it's, it's something that, you know, you shouldn't do. That doesn't mean that we don't do it. And that's where we need to get off our own high horses and make the arrangements. If if you can't drink without driving, it's time to evaluate your drinking. Period. That's right. And let me tell you, like there is so much on the other side of that. You know, I've eight years, eight years sober, and like since I've done that, like my life has just the barriers have been removed the money that I've been able to save and do and experiences that I experienced is just, it's incredible. It's something I couldn't have imagined when I was drinking and I was one of those people. If I drank more than likely I was driving, even if I, cause Uber wasn't around when I was drinking either. So it was, I still remember the taxi number two four two two thousand, Right. And like, I know that that's who I should call doesn't mean that I was and more than like that wasn't and that's the empathy that I'm talking about too you know is for yourself because I think sometimes and here's a little bit that people don't want to talk about right sometimes when we get behind that wheel we're okay with getting in an accident right but we want it to just be us and we're okay with not walking away I know I've had that feeling before.
0: Which is which is equally scary, because think about what that means, especially if you are a father, especially if you are a mother, especially if you are a you're somebody's kid. Right. And so the devastation that you leave, I mean, there are, you know, I had fortunately I had a lot of visits when I was when I was in prison. My family made sure they would come and see me, even though I was three and a half hours away, you know, one way. But the video or the, the, the visiting room was packed on the weekends with kids and like guys who were either in there, obviously, you know, guys were in there for a multitude of things, but certainly, you know, many guys in there for, in Oregon, you go to prison if you've gotten, see the three or four DUIs, you don't have to hit, kill anybody, hit anybody. If you've gotten multiple DUIs, you're going to go to prison. And these little kids, two year olds, three year olds, four year olds, you know, are, are having to watch daddy grow up in prison. And they're, they're, they're so happy they get two or three hours with him, you know, once a month or however long the mom bring. and the mom has to, you know, she's now having to support, uh, you know, these kids on half the income. Right. Mm-hmm. Having to travel 200 miles one way, you know, if they're going to be there for the weekend, she's got to get a hotel. If she leaves the kids at home, she's got to find a babysitter, right? She's responsible for keeping, you know, keeping money on the, on, on the phone so they can talk throughout the week, setting up video visits. You know, it's just, it is such a heavy burden that you place on your family. Again, when you make the decision to drink and drive and the consequences that ensue. And you, like, kids growing up without their parents, there's obviously, a, 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 you know, a, a great deal of pain that comes from that, that they may never get over because kids internalize that as, well, daddy, daddy didn't care enough about me to to not put himself there. Right. Well, daddy chose drinking and, and driving over me right kids don't understand addiction and 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 things like that and 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 that is more than a, simply a choice I but think a again lot of
1: adults don't understand it either exactly
0: right? exactly <laughs> but again these are these are effects that uh and in, in many cases are irreversible you can spend yeah. a lifetime trying to make that up to your kid but how do you make up 10 years or 15 years during their formative formative years mm-hmm. and again if you thought for two seconds that you were going to be out of their lives for that many years and have them grow up and maybe take to the streets because they're looking for that manly love, that fatherly love that you couldn't give them and they found it in the streets and they wound up in the gang or they did, they struggled in school because, I mean, just, just, you cannot fully comprehend how immeasurable the consequences of your actions are. Right. But if you just think about it, For five minutes or 10 minutes, there's no way you're going to tell me that if the worst possible case scenario happens and all of these things happen where I'm taken out of my kids life, I'm going to lose my mom and dad while I'm incarcerated and have to visit them in shackles, right? If, If you contemplate that for five minutes, not even five minutes, there's no way you're going to tell me that taking that risk is worth it when, on the other hand, all you have to do is call an Uber. All you have to do is, you know, call a Lyft or have a friend come get you or walk or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like It's not even like this is no way. And so you know, that would be my message is to think about the worst possible scenario happening and make the right decision. There's a lot of moments
1: in our life where we need to stop and think about that, right? But like We have completely normalized and I'm not saying like it's everybody, every person, every friend group, every culture has normalized the drinking and driving, but it is so normalized across the country that like you said, it's just, it's devastating consequences constantly, unfortunately. And it's something that we need to take control of in ourselves. And you know, it starts here, you know, it starts looking in the mirror. And it starts, you know what? I cannot control how much I drink and I cannot control my actions when I drink. Maybe it's time to start looking at doing things without the alcohol, without drinking, without the drugs, right? Um, how long have you been sober, Martin?
0: It has now been 18 and a half years.
1: Congratulations. Thank you. That is impressive. Even, you know, prison, everything else, like 18 and a half years, it doesn't matter. That's still impressive. And that's something that is, uh, with going through those emotions alone, right. And maintaining through it, like that is so commendable. Like I want to, I want to give you your flowers because that is a lot. It's a lot for anybody to be isolated like you were like that is that's a hell of an achievement that something to be proud of.
0: Well, I, I do appreciate that. And I'll say that the driving force behind that and because I mean, make no mistake about it, like I could have gotten loaded in prison. They make Pruno guys will find a way to write that. Yeah. That's addiction. They will find a way to very innovatively make alcohol in prison. It happened all around me. There was no desire. And the reason why there was no desire is because during that first year when I was still awaiting trial and sentencing and all of that, I had made the commitment that I was going to honor my victims' lives in the work that I would do and how I would spend my time. And I knew that I wanted to help people who were struggling in addiction, in active addiction. So I didn't know exactly how that would manifest. I thought maybe a counselor, maybe a mentor, maybe a volunteer. I don't know. I just know I want to help people in addiction because that's exactly what these people were doing at the time of their untimely deaths. And so I committed to that. So when I got to state prison after my sentencing, you know, I got into the education program. I started to uh, mentor guys um, or tutor guys rather in the GED curriculum, and then I found out I could take one college course at a time and started to accrue credits that way. And when my dad passed away, uh, I was able to afford to take university courses uh, via, you know, the mail because we don't have internet access, so like everything is paper based, you know, through the mail. And um, so I would do my courses that way, send off the exams and everything and then wait for the grade to come back to you and so I eventually parlayed all of that into an associate's degree uh, from Indiana University in 2010 and then I um, got a bachelor's in 2013 in sociology and then I ended up getting a master's in psychology in 2016 but the really cool thing about that whole journey is so I'm starting to unravel a lot about where my addiction started right the through the sociology you learn about all the 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 societal factors right politically and socially and things like that that influence our you know our, our you know kind of the way we see ourselves and how we interact with our environment and in our worlds and then the psychology started to delve deep into you know the identity stuff and 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 the and the um you know just the the uh, self-concept and the stages of you know psychosocial development and things like that things I had never known or considered and how they would affect me and how they did affect me right and yeah. so I'm starting to unravel a lot that enabled me to then be a mentor to the young guys in the prison so obviously we're in prison and there's a lot of trauma, as you can imagine for, I mean, you know, hurt people hurt people. That's just a fact, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of young guys who are walking around with this facade, you know, their chest is puffed out and, you know, they feel like they got to be the tough guy because that's what the prison culture, you know, kind of tells them, but there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of hurt. And so I had the opportunity by working with these young guys on their GEDs, then they would start to open up about life and we would talk about childhood traumas. We would talk about, you know, their goals or their, their dreams or their fears or their concerns and things like that. They really got vulnerable with me because I was a safe space for them because they saw how I conducted myself. And I wasn't like the guys trying to walk around, you know, tough. I was going to school. I was tutoring guys. I stayed out of trouble. I kept my head down. I did what I needed to do. Right. Mm -hmm. I stayed committed to this, to this vow that I made to these family members and the community of how I was going to dedicate my time and my life to this cause. And so it really just reinforced to me that the counseling was where I needed to be, that I had a way of identifying with people's pain and the struggle and, and offering, you know, some hope, not just in the way that I, you know, kind of conducted myself. And they were like, oh, if he can do it, you know, I should be able to do it too. But just in all the, the, the education that I, that I had um, gotten and and then just the experience, life experience, right. And so I was able to get into the drug and alcohol program within the prison as a participant. They had to make an exception because I had so much time left. I still had like six years at that time and you're supposed to have around three years. Before they start giving you these resources, which is the whole another issue about the prison wow. system. Yeah. Wow. If you have more than like three years, you're not even eligible for any programs. So they made an exception because they saw how much I had invested my own money and time and effort into my education. So they said, OK, we'll make an exception. We'll let you go through the program as a participant. And then you can start to get your clinical hours as an intern um, through us. And so I did that. And I was, I mean, guys would open up about, you know, childhood, you know, being molested as a child, like stuff they would never tell anybody else. Right. And um, and that was that was, man, it did so much for me and and my recovery and being vulnerable and, and meeting guys where they are, and you know, just being that that, I don't know, that hope, you know, and encouragement that, that people need when everybody else had given up on them. And so I was able to do that. I got certified as a as a recovery mentor in 2018 and then as a substance abuse counselor the following year in 2019, a couple of years before I got out and um so that was that was uh that was, you know, uh, one of one of the many blessings uh throughout my incarceration. Uh, but I really just grew up in prison. Like I really grew up, you know, I learned so much about myself and about this world and how I could, how I could be in, uh, you know, a positive spoke in the wheel of, of change, uh, you know, they can, they can, uh, exist out here. So that's what I, that's what I did. Um,
1: I have one more question before we get to the whole part. How was your relationship with your brother through, from the crash till getting out and now?
0: So it's a good question. So I'll tell you that for the first four or five years after the crash, my brother didn't touch alcohol. Like he was so, and this is somebody who we would drink every day. Yeah. And the trauma of, of being in the vehicle and living through that, being there when two people died uh, he, he, he just, he, he would not touch alcohol. He drinks today. He does drink responsibly. He won't drive. And, you know, thank God he, you know, he does it responsibly, but it really affected him deeply. My brother, my twin brother, we've always been best friends. So he would come to the jail. They would, you could come twice a week for a half hour at a time behind glass. He was there every visit, except for when my girlfriend at the time would come, but he was there every visit. Um, I, you know, I, I talked to him on the phone at least once or twice a week for the whole 17 and a half years. He, you know, he would, he would never, he he was just happy to see that I had I had found some purpose in, in this, that it wasn't just, I mean, certainly a tragedy. It'll, it'll it'll always remain a tragedy, but it didn't end there. And so any way that any way that he could support me throughout this time, uh throughout that time. He was, he was willing to do. And I actually paroled, you know, to his house, he and his wife, they actually bought the house that we grew up in. Um, you know, my parents left it to us and then he and his wife bought it from my sister and I. So it's their house, but he was like, man, you always got a place here, right? So I literally paroled into his house, the house that we grew up in. And um, like, you know, he didn't ask for a dime. I mean, he's just, he's, I can't say enough good things about my brother. Um, he's he's my best friend, and he's been my you know one of my biggest support supporters, and uh, he's always had my back. So we are as close as as two two siblings can be, for sure.
1: That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that because I know, and the reason I ask this sometimes when you're in traumatic circumstances, right? You can have people try and avoid because of what the PTSD that comes up, right, and everything. So I'm glad that you're both maintaining that strong relationship because it's to be that alone, like completely would be very, very, very difficult. So um, we were having a conversation before we started recording the show about how sobriety, even after you've been in sobriety for a little while, feels like it could be boring, right? It comes with worries. When you're first sober, it feels like anytime you're at a milestone, you worry about that boredom. Like, what am I going to do if I'm not going to be drinking? And part of that's because of culture. Part of it's society. It's so ingrained, alcoholism, literally everything we do. Um, could you, you know, I, I loved your answer with that. Could you go into your worry about being bored, sober and give some people some hope?
0: Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. So... I would say starting at about six months before I got out of prison. Now I'm thinking about release and what that's going to look like and feel like, and what life is, what life is really going to, you know, what it's going to be like. Um, And I thought about it I'm like, I have not been out in the real world since I was 14 and had been sober. Like every time we had gone you know, to the beach or to play pool or to go out dancing at a club, I was always intoxicated. Yes. I literally felt like I had to be intoxicated to really enjoy myself. So a part of a part of me started to fear that life was going to be incredibly boring. And is it going to be so overwhelmingly boring that it would cause me to relapse is what I wondered. I I was I didn't want to speak it outwardly because I didn't want to kind of give it life in that in that sense. And I don't know if that's good or bad because we should always be honest and talk to our support system and things like that. But I just didn't want to, I didn't want to accept that that could, that that could happen. But yes. I'm thinking about it, right? Exactly. Let me just say, it's been a year and about 10 days now that I've been out. I have lived my best life. <laughs> like I have... Totally, like I've gone skydiving. I've been surfing. I've gone indoor rock climbing. I've been to Vegas. I've been to Bahamas. I've been to DC. I travel. I had, a, you know, my first birthday party with my twin brother at our the house that we grew up in. All of my family is there. There's, you know, balloons and cake and ice cream and like all that kid stuff. But like it was so like fulfilling and joyful and the beauty in all of it is that I can remember everything that happened. Like I wake <laughs> yes. up the next day and yes. I actually remember yep. what I did yesterday and last week and last month. <laughs> and 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 here's the thing, it makes sense. It makes sense that I would, you know, totally be having the greatest time of my life because these are all the things that I hadn't explored in my addiction, right? Yeah. We don't go and do all these, you know, adventurous, spontaneous things when we're drinking, right? And so it's producing all these levels of dopamine and serotonin and, and you know oxytocin and all these chemicals that naturally are in our brain that we try to act or that we do activate through our mm-hmm. substance use, right? But if we get rid of the substances and we start to do things that will stimulate us. We will get that that high right we'll feel juiced up and mm-hmm. um it's, it's 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 been incredible, man, I wouldn't change it for the world i am I am so glad and grateful and happy that I am able to finally live a healthy, sober life, and it is fun as hell like it is fun, yeah and so.
1: I think that that's, we lose sight of that, right? Like you you go sober. What am I going to do now? There's literally nothing I can do because alcohol, but like, that's the barrier. That's a barrier we place around ourselves. So now you remove those barriers. Well, why can't I go hiking today? Why can't I go surfing? You know what? I can go skydiving because that sounds like a good time. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. (laughs) <laughs> and
0: listen i'm afraid of heights and and i jumped out of a plane 14,500 feet in the air and and here's the thing it was like never on my bucket list but when 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 you've been told for 17 and a half years that you can't do anything mm-hmm. when they let you free you want to do everything right <laughs> you, you, you just want to go for it yeah everything within reason. But it's just these new experiences and allowing yourself to try new things. If you do it and you don't like it, then you never have to do it again. But try it. You don't know Absolutely. until you know. Yes. Here's,
1: right? here's, here's my question for you. Food. I mean, I, it's, it's different because you're coming out of prison, but like the, the different types of food that you try and you actually taste you actually taste it. Like, I cannot stress it enough. The changes there.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, no, let me tell you like, I'm a big foodie. Like, I am a foodie.
1: And, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it.
0: and, and so, and, and being in prison, as you can imagine, the food is not the greatest. Yeah. Right? The food is not the greatest. And so, yeah, I hadn't had like great, great food, um, you know, for almost 17 and a half, for 17 and a half years. Um, I mean, every now and then they would do like a fundraiser where we would pay, you know, 20 bucks to have like a Domino's a medium Domino's pizza, you know, brought into the prison. They would do that. But by and large, like when I got out and but I remember it was, <laughs> you know, I thought I thought that I was just going to devour all this good food that, that I had been deprived of for so many years. Yeah. But um, that first morning, I remember we had gone to a Sherry's restaurant and I don't, I don't know if you have them there. But in Oregon, it's just a, you know, it's like a Denny's, right? They have all the breakfast food. And so I I wanted this big Belgian waffle with strawberries and whipped cream and bacon and sausage and eggs and hash browns, like everything. And I got through like half of it. And like, I was just done (laughs) because because my stomach wasn't used to like that type of food. And it took Mm -hmm. a while to adjust. took about a week, week and a half to actually adjust to eating real food and so but oh let me tell you like it's been over a year and i'm still trying stuff that is just you know i'm just having a party in my mouth all the time like seriously <laughs> so uh, again if i was drinking mm, probably wouldn't taste so good right uh we certainly we don't have the greatest. It.
1: you'd be right like now. burger where can i get a burger
0: exactly you know well
1: yeah. Right. Like, well, let's get a steak or, you know, a steak from Applebee's, a good steak. Right. right. <laughs> and I, yes, I am clowning on Applebee's steak because that is not <laughs> a good steak. I'm sorry. It tastes perfectly fine. Don't get me wrong. But you can get something better for almost the same price. So yes, indeed. honestly, you can find better for cheaper. So. that's what i like doing i like exploring and trying to find like the most cost effective like great food that you can find that's what i like to try to find and uh i enjoy it that's that's kind of like that's that's what i like
0: to do so It's, it's it's a worthwhile hobby let me tell you that (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> different than what I used to do. Right. It used to be find the best drink deals and I knew where they all were. So there was no, fortunately. So, yes. um, Martin, as we're winding down here, um, what is one thing you would like to leave people with, uh, one message?
0: I just want to say that there is always hope. You know, I talk to so many people through my job and they call in on the drug and alcohol line, one of the lines that I answer. And people, you know, because there's this great overwhelming fear of the unknown. And so even though people know that they have a problem with their drinking, that they shouldn't be drinking every day, that it's causing problems in their relationships, that it's causing problems at their job, legal issues, what have you, it's still something that's familiar. And so there's an overwhelming fear that prevents them from you know stepping into that realm of sobriety and recovery. But I would just say that you don't have to do it alone, that there is a ton of help out there. Um, you can start, here's a beautiful thing, in five days, there's gonna be a nationwide um, uh, infrastructure set up for 988. So we have 911 for emergencies. We're gonna have 988 for behavioral uh, mental crises. Uh, you know, being in addiction and, and looking to be free of addiction is a behavioral health crisis. So 988 will be readily available for you, whatever state you're in, they will connect you to a crisis worker, or a mental health worker, myself, or, you know, thousands of others across the country who will be more than happy to connect you with resources in your community, in person, online, free, covered by insurance, you name it across the board, we have it. Um, there is hope out there, and we would love to be able to talk to you and kind of guide you through and 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 hold your hand a little bit until you're able to kind of stand stand alone. Never alone, but you know you build that foundation to where you can start to see the fruits of recovery and what life actually looks like on this side of addiction. And so I just want to leave people with that: that there is always hope. Uh, right now, you can call one eight hundred. and follow the prompts to get connected to a drug and alcohol counselor, totally free of charge. Be more than happy to talk to you, get you connected with some resources. But on 716, 988 will be the number. So please do use it.
1: That's fantastic. And I completely forgot that 988 was going into effect that I saw and I was like, finally, like amazing. And that's awesome. Man. I'm really glad you called that out. Uh, if Mar- Martin, if people want to keep up with you, where could they follow you?
0: So I'm only on Instagram. You know, I actually swore, swore that I would not do the social media thing before I got out of prison. <laughs> but, but I know some people who are very active on Instagram. And they say it's just a great way to get connected, especially in the sobriety community. And, and I'm pleasantly surprised that is the case. So on Instagram, it's just Martin L. Lockett. Uh, and then you can also go to my website at martinlocket.com.
1: That's awesome. I re- thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your story. And not just the deep being vulnerable, but like the happy side too, the hope that came on the other side. Because that's important for people to know that, yes we all have a story right we 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 all have that past but there's hope on the other side and um hearing your story it goes a long way for helping people and that's really what it's all about is helping helping people whether they know they need it or not so for those who don't know been through the show for this long, but this is untapped keg, a podcast where we explore different perspectives of sobriety and mental health to hopefully find you a piece that you can take and use in your own life. I'm RJ Zimmerman. You can find us at untapped keg on all social media platforms. You can find us on youtube.com slash untapped keg. You'll get the video of this, or you can find it on all, um, at audio only on those podcast platforms. And you know what? Let's try to be better tomorrow than we were today because if we don't make it, we tried. I love you. Have a great week, everybody.